Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a pair of pastor scholars study a scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, as well as equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drury. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary and Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Beverly Gaventa. Dr. Gaventa is a scholar of the New Testament with special attention to Paul's letters, and she taught for many years at Princeton Theological Seminary where our paths first cross, but she's currently a professor of New Testament at Baylor University. And our text this week is Romans chapter 8, verse 22 through 27. Romans 8, 22 through 27, a fitting epistle passage for Pentecost Sunday alongside other classic uh, familiar texts. So we're so glad to have Dr. Gaventa with us this week as a uh, expert on Paul and as a, one who's working on a commentary on Romans as we speak. So we're so glad to have her on the show this week. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show on to others so that they may benefit as well. And lastly, if you'd like to support the show financially and receive some additional content, simply go to patreon.com slash fresh text to become one of our patron saints. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Beverly Gaventa. Let's go ahead and get started. All Would you right. be willing to read the passage? Romans 8, 22 to 27, and I'm reading from the NRSV. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what is seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but that very Spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words. And God, who searches the heart, knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that the self-same Spirit, which is spoken of in this, uh, these words of your Apostle Paul, that that same Spirit would be moving and working among us this hour for Beverly and myself and all our listeners, that the Spirit would be, uh, of course, moving to illumine us and help us to see and to hear and be awakened to the truth of your word. But we also want to give you thanks and request the continuance of the way that your Spirit works when we don't know what to say, when we don't know how to pray when we don't exactly get what's in front of us, 
we entrust ourselves to you and your spirit to intercede for us with groanings too deep for words. And so in the name of Jesus Christ, we ask for this work of your spirit for the sake of your name. Amen. Amen. Well, so before we started recording, you referred to this as a tangle. So what threads should we pick up with, pick up first? What are, what are some threads that capture your attention right now today? Well, I assume that we want to talk about this in relationship to Pentecost Sunday at some point, but this whole chapter and this passage in particular brings out, I think, the the dual standing of the Christian. Now, I'll footnote and say, yes, I understand it's problematic to talk about Christians when Paul is writing. It's a shorthand for people who believe Jesus is the Messiah and who are part of this group to whom Paul is writing in Rome. But as Paul sees it, as he's articulating it, these people and Paul himself, we, he says, and not just us, but the whole of creation, you know, is caught in this time of suffering. He doesn't say what that is. And I think it's problematic to try to specify. He talks about this groaning, this this desire, this urge. It's really the language of maternal birth, you know, this urge for the future at the very same time that there is also this intense sense of hope and this need for deliverance and this affirmation of hope exists here side by side, not even side by side, but tangled up in one another. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not a things are bad, but nevertheless, I have hope. You know, it is in the midst of hope. We do in the midst of this hope by by which I think Paul means conviction. You know, mm. it's, it's in part the conviction about what has God has done in Jesus that causes us to be caught up in the groaning of all creation. That's interesting, even calling it tangled up. I mean, the hope and the suffering being tangled together. I mean, in many ways, that's one way of almost paraphrasing the gist of verse 24, as if he's pausing to say, obviously, when we talk about hope, right. you know, he, he, he's almost aware that there's a possible misunderstanding of the term, that hope isn't maybe the inference of good things. We infer that more good will come. That would be drawing an inference or planning, but hope is more precisely because we can't see it is why the language of hope fits. Am I capturing that right? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I take it that's what verse 24 is. You know, you don't hope for what you see. You hope for that which you don't yet see, right? Yeah, and it's the language of, of course, the language of hope doesn't dominate the whole chapter, and it, but no. the language of waiting starts, I think, as early as, well, suffering starts in 18, 18. Mm-hmm. and... The longing and the waiting language starts in 19. So uh, am I right to guess that that kind of language invites the language of hope? Or when when you mention that conviction, that's an interesting take on the word hope. I see you grinning. Say more about that. (laughs) Well, what I'm trying to distinguish it from is hope in the sense of wish. You know, I Ah, sure hope 
that there's going to be something I like for dinner, you know, but that's what we mean by wish. You know, that's really, I would say that's a kind of wishful thinking. I wish that I could have, you know, a week free from interference of petty things that I shouldn't have to deal with. You know, hope is for Paul, I think it is more certain than that. It lacks that sense of maybe it will happen and maybe it won't. If you go back to chapter five, at the beginning of chapter five, he talks about how hope is a product of suffering, tribulation, endurance, testing, and that's what produces hope. So hope is not just a kind of wishful thinking. Hope is is something that is somewhat more substantive. Would it be linked, and and if this is too far afield, say so, but would the term hope be more properly linked to promise as its kind of counterpoint? I know promise is big in chapter four. I'm not sure promise language appears anywhere in this chapter. but Yeah, I don't think so, but I I think that's a good connection to draw, especially here when, you know, by the end of the chapter, he's going to talk about the utter reliability of God's love for us, that it will not let us go, right? No matter what. And so it is on that basis that one has hope. If I say I have hope in this deliverance, it's precisely because I trust in God, not because I trust in my own ability to hope a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That sounds right. Yeah, so how does then that hope then relate to, so we've got a couple pieces on the table here now of hope and suffering and uh, promise in the background, the the convictional character of hope. So then in, in 25, you know, but if we hope for what we do not see through endurance, you know, we, we are waiting, we are in waiting. Right. Would you be willing to comment a little just on that, that terminology there of, of even the grammar of it's a little weird to my eyes. I mean, you know better than me, but it is. Well, that, that, the, the waiting is connected back to verse 23. Uh, we wait for adoption, uh, groaning in ourselves while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our body, which we might want to talk about too. Uh, but we wait through, you know, we translate this hippomane as endurance. I've taken to translating it as persistence. Ah, okay. In part because it, is a term that we associate now with doing something in the face of resistance to it, right? And I, I think it's a perfectly valid translation, and it 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 gives it a little more context for us. I think. makes it a little more active too. Yes. At least the way we hear the word, I think. Unless I, I think some athletes would hear endurance as active, meaning I've endurance testing, but our everyday language of endurance doesn't have that. It just means I endure. It's kind of more passive. Is that right? And I think I see why persistence captures the the language a little better, huh? Yeah. As long as we keep in mind that always, you know, at least in Paul, that the capacity to persist is also God given. It's not right. It's not my capacity to persist. Right. But it's also persist to me, persistence takes on a, a context, 
where endurance can be just sort of my own little internal process. Ah, okay. Um, and maybe that's not the way it's used, but I think of it, especially with the, some of the political overtones it's had in recent years of persistence yes. in the face of opposition. Yeah, she persisted. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I catch that. Okay, so this through or by way of persisting, yeah, we are, you know, awaiting. We wait. Is there any contrast there in those those two terms, or would those just naturally go together? I think they belong together. I don't think there's a contrast between them. To me, what's more interesting, and you may just want to say that's not where you want to go, but back in verse 23, what's interesting to me is we groan together, mm-hmm. waiting for adoption, and then how does he parse adoption? How does he explain adoption? It's the redemption of our body. You know, this is, again, one of those odd Pauline expressions because, yeah. you know, if we're in labor, and that's the language he's using, if we're in labor, it's to produce a baby, right? You don't go into labor to produce an adoption. Now, uh, yeah. now, somebody will object to this, and I understand in a modern context, to be sure, there are people who, parents, who wait for someone else to be in labor so they can adopt a child. Absolutely. Sure. But uh, in the Roman world, that's not how adoption worked. Adoption was primarily for adults, that is, for adult children, you didn't hang around waiting for the birth mother to give birth so you could adopt. So this is a very strange image to say that we groan with the pangs of labor waiting for adoption. So instead of the we're producing something, right? The adoption is something we're receiving. Right. And then he goes yeah. further to say the redemption of our, notice the singular, our body, body, right? It's not, and and all the, I think all the translations. um, Pluralize it. They pluralize it. I've got Um, the NASB here in front of me and it does not. It's interesting. I love the NASB. It's very unreadable. It's barely English, but at least it tends to make those kinds of choices. Leave it as wooden as possible. You know, it's not a great, it has downsides, but that's one upside of this translation. Well, it's helpful in that sense to see what Paul says. Now, the argument would be that, of course, he means plural bodies. And I don't object to that, but I'm inclined to think this is our corporate body. This is us. You know, no, I think that's that's fair. It's it's one of those things where it's semantically possible to to run the the plurals right. and the singulars that way. They're a little more flexible in Greek than English, from what that's I understand. Correct. Right, but it's helpful to not always jump to that conclusion without strong that's right. contextual it's- evidence. And given that Paul explicitly and repeatedly uses the language of body singular to describe the community. We have pretty good exegetical grounding to say, well, let's not jump. Obviously, he also is interested in the resurrection of individual bodies and references that elsewhere, but that's not on the radar here. Well, right. Um, And not only that, but 
you know, if we push back a little further into this text, there is not only a kind of corporate voice here of believers, there's a corporate voice here of all of creation. You know, it's catesis that is crying out, right? It's the whole of creation. And as the children of God, we, he says, we also groan, you know, right along with creation. Now, my reading of this is a little different from a lot of people. So I will admit that and people can go look at a standard commentary. But I think there's a lot of sense of identification here with creation. And some people get very nervous about that because they will say, well, you know, maybe he means creation in terms of flora and fauna, but he doesn't mean other people because Uh. non-believers don't cry out with longing. Well, I think from Paul's perspective, they actually do. Sure. You know, I think that all, all are crying out. Some may not know why. Some may not be cognizant. But from Paul's perspective, the whole of creation is in longing. And we have a particular vantage point of that on that because of uh, the role of the spirit. That's that's fun to think about. So, I mean, there's a few clues. I mean, he uses this verb a few times. We know that. Mm-hmm. We know that, which sort of implies that he's not just talking about facts that are true of us that aren't true of others, but more that these are cosmic facts that we know about and others don't, which which would ma- match the pattern you're mentioning of not all are cognizant. And then right. the language of groanings too deep for words, obviously that's predicated of the spirit, but it hints at the possibility that this language of groanings is intentionally chosen to be less than verbal, less than cognitive, more uh, a sort of deep embodied longing, desire, a pain more than always sort of explicit words, uh, claims, which is part of what the hope language, again, back to conviction, right? The hope has a content. There's, there's a specific content to that that might be known and believed in by only a few, but right. that doesn't mean it's not true beyond that group. Is that what I'm hearing you say, or am I missing track? Well, it is. I mean, I think by the time we get down to the language of the spirit in 26 and 27, I think the we there is very much we in the community. But this notion of the knowledge, the awareness that believers have that is distinctive, I think runs through the kind of epistemological discussions that you get in 1 Corinthians. I think it probably shows up in Romans 5. God has acted in, you know, when he says Christ has overturned the mistake of Adam the sin of Adam, well, Adam's sin affected the whole of humanity. So Christ's obedience also affects the whole of humanity. Yeah, it's the straightforward grammar of it. Otherwise, the word all has two different meanings in one sentence. Well, otherwise, what you're saying is that (laughs) Adam is more powerful than Christ. Yeah, right. you've You've got a real problem there. That's not to say that everyone knows the implications of what Christ did, right? So this question of uh, what God has done for all people in Jesus and what people, who knows about it, who catches a glimpse of it, that Mm. that distinction I think is fairly important. 
Yeah. Who, who puts hope in it, who has conviction right. toward it. Right. Yeah. Right. That's good. Well, let's take a quick break and uh, zoom out and keep digging in. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Beverly Gaventa, and we're looking at Romans 8, uh, verses 22 through 27. And I like to sometimes say the first segment is kind of zoom in, hug the text, and then second segment, zoom out, and we can include whatever we want. So we can talk about possible other interpretations. We can debate particular questions. We can look at the larger chapter. Uh, So, I mean, of course, there's more than enough here, so I don't want to push us beyond, but I don't want you to feel uh, rigidly uh, stuck in in this tiny little chunk that doesn't even make sense where the lectionary broke it. I mean, kind of those were some weird verse choices this week, especially. Well, I assume it's because the lectionary is looking at Pentecost and wanting to be sure to get this language about the Spirit in here. And maybe we should talk about those last couple of verses just for a moment. Perfect, yeah. I find this fascinating. And the longer I've thought about it, the more interesting it becomes to me. Because what he says is, you know, we have the first fruits whether that first fruit is of the Spirit or the first fruit, which is the Spirit, that is the Spirit's gifts, but the Spirit intercedes or helps us in our weakness because we don't know, It's the Greek is a little vague, something like we don't know how to pray as it's necessary to pray. This fascinates me. Here you have a man who talks about praying without ceasing, Mm -hmm. you know, who talks about being fervent in prayer, and he will say that we don't know how to pray as we ought to, which I think is part and parcel of the the vastness of this chapter, that Mm. it, uh, it takes us out to look at the whole of creation, you know, from a sort of God's eye point of view, and that's that sounds slightly blasphemous, but it, it, we're, you know we zoom out here to look at what's going on with the whole of creation, and from the point of view of the spirit, we don't even know how to pray. Yeah. Even though elsewhere he says we pray without ceasing, you know, so, and, and I, I and he even reports his own prayers sometimes. Yeah, Here's how I've been I, praying for you. Right, and <laughs> I think that's fantastic, and I think it's real. Yeah, you know that, that that we struggle even to pray, and the Spirit helps us. And then God, who searches hearts, understands what the Spirit is doing. So we have all of this language that, on the one hand, articulates our incapacity, even as adopted children in God's household. You know, that's incapacity. And on the other hand, you have this almost overwhelming sense of the help that is available, the enabling that's available, a good enabling, not a bad enabling, that is Mm -hmm. available in the action of God, in the action of the Spirit. And then by the time the chapter is over, he also says, Jesus intercedes for us. Yeah. I love that the same verb appears. Yeah. For both. So... You know, this is kind of a nightmare for a systematician who wants to make it all come out in a sort of tidy 
Sorry, I don't mean that as an assault on systematicians. But if there's, I won't this, take it personally. I agree with the, I agree with your assessment. If there's this desire, <laughs> and, and biblical scholars too, to make it all look tidy, God does this, Jesus does that, the Spirit does the third thing. Then what we constantly find is that doesn't work, and not just yeah. in this passage, but in others as well. And I think that's in part why the church later on has to articulate a doctrine of the Trinity, has to ask these questions about how the three are related to one another. Yeah, it's like texts like these aren't setting forth Trinity doctrine, but they're making statements that invite a particular doctrinal response, you know? Right. And and you can't just say, yeah, it's just a mystery. You can only say that so many times. At some point, you have to say, well, so there's the Father, and he sent his Son, and and raised them from the dead by his spirit. And yeah, these are all God and yet not three gods, but you know, so you can kind of, right. you see how that comes, even if it's not the the point or the, the, the thinking or the teaching of the text at hand. And even the subtlety of the spirit and Christ who both have this verb, you, you do have this kind of unity and distinction. That's very interesting. They're both, not to be too tidy, but I'll, I'll take a shot at it. You, and you push back, but they're both interceding for us. But there's this reference to the right hand, you know, to, to being at the right of God that suggests a different imagery from the groaning without words. And though it doesn't say it, you know, Jesus is a human person who would speak. Aramaic and be praying. Like he doesn't go into this, but I mean, there, there's a part of me that wants to say you almost get two kinds of intercession the, the more verbal intercession of the risen Christ at the right hand of the Father, perhaps, and the more groaning, uh, the searching of hearts, this more charismatic, for lack of a better term, yeah. kind of prayer. You're getting both this kind of. I don't know. What do you think of that? You kind of almost, it's kind of all the kinds of intercession are covered by these, these, uh, yeah, by that, son that, and spirit. That's nice. And we haven't talked about, you mentioned uh, Jesus as this, this human being, you know, back in eight, three, Paul says, God sent his son right. in the likeness of the flesh of sin. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I take to mean, you know, that, that Jesus is, born very much like us mm-hmm. and, you know, is captive in a sense to human flesh. So the incarnation means that Jesus is for Paul, one of us is subject to sin and death, which is precisely why he is able to say back in chapter six, that because of the resurrection, death no longer rules over him. That he died. Which implies that it used to. <laughs> yeah. He died yeah. to sin, right? Yeah. So here you get not the Jesus who is incapable of sin, but the Jesus who, thanks to the death and resurrection, is not subject to this power of sin or the power of death. I think I took us way off of your point. No, I I think it was fabulous because the hope of the duality that you called it at the beginning, or to put it differently, the hope in suffering, 
that as you expanded on that, the whole duality of the Christian life, the hope, the, the rug is pulled out from under our hope if it turns out that Jesus was just pressing the easy button, as it were, and yeah. avoiding all of this trouble, right? The, the reason why he's the, the ground and object of our hope is he underwent it all in his death and resurrection, overcame, and so we both look back to the sense in which we've been liberated through his through the apocalyptic event of his death and resurrection, but also we look forward to the fact that our full redemption on that front is not yet complete. So, I mean, to me, it's like the whole engine of hope in chapter eight is precisely the suffering of Christ <laughs> and his resurrection, right? Unless I'm missing it, you know? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. It's God's action in this human being, Jesus, mm. Who is also God's son? I mean, it 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 is. That was more precise. Yeah, that was that was very good. Yeah, and that and that same God is at work in us, and will raise our mortal bodies. And there it is, plural in verse eleven. Yeah, and mortal it's bodies. Really, yeah, yeah, it's really important to remember that. You know, as you know better than I do, for the early church, the problem here was very often the denial of Jesus's real humanity. Mm-hmm. We get caught up in a, a different kind of denial, wanting Jesus to be our buddy <laughs> and uh, a kind of example for us. Yeah, you know, our difficulty is at the other on the other side of the of the uh, Chalcedonian definition. But they're really I like is- you mentioned in the example there, because in a way, like to think of Jesus as a good example, a good teacher is in many ways to render the spirit superfluous, right? The, this chapter relies so heavily on spirit language, kind of back and forth between spirit talk and Christ talk, even the opening verses have both. It seems like the whole logic of the chapter seems to indicate that the upside, the benefit, the hope that we have in Christ is activated because the spirit is working around us and in us and among us, right? Exactly. Not because we're looking at Jesus and drawing again, back to inference. We're not drawing inferences. What would I do? How would, how should I live in light of what Christ lived? No, it's, he did it. It's done. I know that by faith, I have hope in it. And so the spirit's giving us the, the power to sort of live this new life. Yeah. The spirit, which comes alongside and within and dwells and uh, really is, what enables, I, I keep using that word, which has some problems to it, but which empowers mm. our life in Christ, however limited that still remains. Right? Yeah, I, like, I, I struggle with that too. Enables seems like a logically good word, but it has this connotation in addiction context, right? Is that right. what I was saying? Right, right. I've, I've played with the word and it's just a transliteration of the Greek word that appears in a number of places uh, uh, energizes just to be yeah. silly, but it's kind of fun. And it's, it's this kind of working in, you know, right. um, and it's a, it's just a fun verb that I sometimes use. It's kind of arcane. <laughs> but if you, you know, we didn't spend any time on it. We can't do all of it, but the first say 11 verses uh, or wow. Even the first 17 verses of the chapter you know, are this elaborate argument about the role of the spirit. Uh, we live in the spirit. We don't live 
in the flesh. Now, boy, talk about a loaded you know, comparison <laughs> yeah. because th- that sort of, that does touch off all the buttons where people think, oh, Paul has a terrible view of the human body. That's not the point. Flesh, flesh and body are not the same. These are not right. synonyms for Paul. Well, flesh <laughs> is not flesh for Paul, you know, in our way of thinking. Yeah. Flesh is a kind of merely human way of thinking and uh, being in the world. It is a, a set of, I would say, corrupt values, right? Huh. Of corrupted uh, perceptions. And so living in the spirit is living, you know, it's not that I make a decision. I I was in the flesh and now I want to be in the spirit, you know, but living in the spirit is being overtaken by this, this glimpse of what God has done and what God will do in Jesus Christ. Man, that's really powerful language. Being overtaken by a glimpse. Yeah. You know, I mean, as a kind of shorthand for what Pentecost meant and means. That's, that's really striking. I do think that our language about the spirit had better stay cautious, not cautious, but had better stay anticipatory and not get predictive and not get, not get limited into little cliches because, you know, as the gospel of John teaches us, the spirit blows where it will. You know, the spirit is not to be contained in our little formulae, but for Paul, the spirit is clearly a manifestation of God's life, God's action in Jesus for us in our lives. And, you know, I, when I use this word I, overtaken, that is the word Paul uses of himself in Philippians 3. You know, I, yeah. I was overtaken. And I, I like that because we are so, at least when I say we, I mean we North American Christians are so confident in our own uh, ability to decide things. You know? yeah. And yeah. Uh, Paul gives us a prime example of someone who knew that he hadn't decided anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, here the language is the, the verb in like, say, verse 14 of being led by yeah. Or pulled by. It's not as striking as as the overtaken, but it it fits that larger uh, yeah. paradigm. And especially when the language gets so, for lack of a better term, apocalyptic here, you get the feeling like we're caught up in something much bigger. That's the picture Correct. here. And yeah. hence why the cosmic and the creational language and even the spirit language, which can sound a little mystical sometime, we trying to contain that just to make it clear is not worth it. It needs to remain fluid. It's interesting you mentioned John. This is just a side note, Johannine literature. It dawned on me one time, the imagery for the sun tends to be more fixed imagery, bread, the vine, and the imagery for the spirit is all very fluid, water. Mm-hmm. The word spirit itself it being an image of breath or wind, which is right. what's being played on in John 3 right. that you referenced. Right. Um, and there's, though not in John, the language of fire is associated with spirit elsewhere. Whereas like Paul says, the, the, the rock is Christ, right? You almost get this kind of fixed pole, fluid pole playing off each other, which in some ways parallels even here, this kind of absolutely fixed, confident ground in Christ and what, what God did in him 
uh, and he's there at the right hand. Even that imagery is sitting down at the right hand of a of a king. Almost, you know, it's got this this confidence, and then this groaning with words. You know, <laughs> groaning too deep for words. Right? Like, I mean, this is very. I can't grasp that. I can't. It, it it's so funny. It says the the spirit helps us, uh, and when we don't know how to pray and you almost want to say, Oh, it's going to give us the words to pray. Like, like in Luke, when it says when, and Mark, when you're dragged before, you know, that's a different teaching here. It's no, you're not going to get the words. <laughs> the spirit's going to do it. Going to pick up right. what's lacking. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the spirit I, as just I perfects said, it on his own without us. <laughs> yeah. At the beginning, what I, what I find wonderful about this passage is on the one hand, this glorious language it uses for the we, you know, we are adopted. There's a great place at, in uh, verse 15. You did not receive a spirit of slavery again to fear, but you received a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You know, this, this slavery language that Paul uses freely you know, is is being slavery here becomes adoption into the household, you know, and being heirs and co-heirs with Christ and so forth. And then at the end of the chat of, uh, sorry, verse 29 and so forth, being conformed to the image of the son, you get this rather exalted image about what it means to be who we are, we being believers but at the same time, that is this tiny token of what the culmination looks like, because we don't know how to pray. We have to have the Spirit pray for us. And even the Spirit doesn't give us, even then we don't get words, we get the Spirit's intervention. We get God's help. We get the inter- intervention of Jesus. So there is this, as I say, it's it's something astonishing has happened in the cross and resurrection, but it's this tiny, tiny uh, note anticipating the whole great orchestra that has not yet shown up, you know, and I just, I, I just think it's a remarkable chapter. Oh, that's beautiful. Let's take a quick break and explore some sermon starters. Okay. All right, we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Beverly Benson. We're looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, focusing in on uh, verses 22 through 27, which are a epistle selection in year B for in the Revised Common Lectionary for Pentecost. So we're going to explore some sermon starters, uh, you know, nothing fully cooked here, just exploring and even talking about Pentecost preaching, Trinity preaching, Pauline preaching. There's lots of things we can reflect on. Just for the sake of our listeners, how about I go ahead and just read the passage a second time uh, just to kind of get it back in front of our minds or in our ears, and then I'll ask you where you'd like to explore. So, for we know that the whole creation is groaning and in suffering the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves Having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption, 
as sons the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with persistence we wait eagerly for it. And in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the one who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God or according to God. Well, yeah, so let's explore some sermon starters. Where, What advice would you have for people who might be teaching or preaching on this text or just general pet peeves about Pentecost preaching would be a fine place to start. We can start anywhere. <laughs> well, uh, you said pet peeves, so I will come up with at least one. This is so often referred to as the birthday of the church. You know, you take the Acts narrative about the arrival of the Spirit, and here's the birthday of the church, and, you know, happy birthday to us. And I, you know, I recognize there's some need for that. And maybe especially these days, given, given what churches, and I mean by that individual congregations, have had to endure over the last year, there may be a place for saying, happy birthday to us. You know, we, <laughs> we uh, by the grace of God, we have uh, endured another year, and we we give thanks for that, and that that makes a kind of sense. But this arrival of the Spirit, I'm thinking of the Acts narrative now, but also here, it's not something that's in our control, and it's not simply to give birth to the church. I think sometimes our anxiety about the church's life causes us to hold tenaciously, you know, to uh, a cer- certain forms of church or certain notions of what the church has to do or to celebrate. And I, I, I understand that. But here, I find it fascinating that the people we would call the church are both lifted up as God's sons and daughters, and also reminded that what we have is only this tiny little anticipation of what's to come. You know, it's the, it's the first little sign of spring. It's not summer. And that to me is the role of the spirit is, is to press us forward to remind us that, that that we have no idea all that is in store for us. That's a pretty bad sermon, but it's at least a place to start thinking about it. Yeah, well, I use the language sermon starters to say, eh, just something to prime the pump for our listeners who might be teaching others. It seems to me that you're right that that Pentecost preaching, both in the literal sense of the day, of Pentecost, but then preaching on the Spirit can often be very ecclesiocentric, to use a term, you know, like it can be a little 
this is about us. And there, that is a feature, you know, but this passage really by zooming out to this kind of cosmic scope and keeping our eye on that, which is still to come is a, I think a really powerful counterweight to a particular kind of habit of whether we use that particular trope of uh, the birthday of the church. I remember the first time I heard that. I didn't grow that that language. I didn't grow up with that. And so when I first encountered it um, as a young adult, I did. It's it sat weird in my ears. I mean, I kind of got it, but it was like really like I guess like that seems like a footnote. <laughs> that doesn't seem like the point. Uh, and it seems like that's increased more and more. And I think there's a I think a correct correction. There, there's a there's a prudent correction of our individualism in the modern world by talking about the church, but that's not the only corrective to individualism. There are other correctives like what's in this passage and like what I hear you suggesting of this something much grander than even the congregation of the faithful now that are just catching a glimpse of something really massive on the horizon. Yeah. And I think I think this is important in in Paul's theology, and I, we could even talk about Acts for a moment too, because I think on the one hand, Paul is here and in all of his letters deeply concerned about these little groups of people in these various cities all over the Mediterranean. You know, he wants to build them up together. You know, what does he talk about in chapter 14, but upbuilding one another, you know? And so it's important to him that they be not just together, but that they be firm, right? That they have a kind of boundary. But at the same time, Paul is also very much aware that any boundary is a problem if it understands God's action as being only for certain people, right? So you have at the same time, this language of a building, but also, I keep going back to chapter five, because I do think it's so important, this action um, in Christ for all people, or you get that wonderful language, you know, Christ dying for the ungodly, you know, Christ didn't die for the people who were in the church, but for the ungodly, the sinners, the uh, the weak. You know, th- this is this is really important for him, in part because of his own experience. I think. Yeah, the lost elements. sheep, to use language from the yeah, and Gospels. I think it's also the case in the Book of Acts. Yes, Pentecost, the Spirit takes this community and converts it, if you will, changes it over into a community of preaching and sharing and worship together and so forth. But it's also pretty clear at the beginning of Acts that that church in Jerusalem doesn't really know what it's doing. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> you know, They do not immediately say, aha, Jesus sent us to go into the world and uh, we'll go to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Why did they leave Jerusalem? Because they're persecution. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, and, you know, and they're dragged to the conversion of Cornelius, kicking and screaming, right? Because the spirit was working outside the boundaries. Yeah, right. 
Right. So on the one hand, the church is very important, but it's not important in and of itself. It's important in relationship to what God is doing with it. And that's where I get a little nervous about ecclesiocentrism, even at the same time that I would say there's no place else to be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for those of us who've been grasped by the gospel, where it's it's not okay to say, well, you know, I have my personal spiritual life and it it doesn't it's not tied up with other people. That's that's not what I'm saying at all. Yeah, when the spirit moves, it moves us into community, forms a body. Yeah. Um, but to recognize that that fixed pole that is the church and its boundaries and its center and its practices is just one pole. And there is this more fluid pole, use that terminology again, because the risen one who is the head of that body is not sort of limited and controlled by us, but we're under you know, his lordship, yeah, right? We do. That's where our hubris kicks in rather often, right? Yeah. Is uh, to assume that we know what God is up to. When, we have Christ and we're dispensing it. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, we're dispensing Christ that, to the world. And that's that's quite perilous. Yeah. So there could be a little bit of a teaching or sermon idea that could follow this form of thought that kind of introduces that happy birthday that acknowledges that, but then to recognize, of course, we're just this little beachhead of the kingdom, just this, you know, this little glimpse of what's still coming. And then to explore the workings of the spirit outside our expected boundaries. And in fact, actually, if one were to look back on this year in church practice, there's been a bit of already experiencing that, of, of seeing even in our own church practice of what it looks like to worship in a scattered way, what it looks like to regard one's neighborhood as a sacred place and not just one's church building, these kinds of things. Yeah. are So there's things that we can yeah. build on. It's not just all completely out of nowhere, but some cosmic sense of this groaning. And I mean, the three groanings here, whether this is a different sermon idea or, or a way of developing that, uh, developing in the second half of that idea is, the, the notion of sort of paying attention to the groanings, our own groanings, listening to the world's groanings, and trusting in the Spirit's groanings. Now, that might be too easy because it's three points, but preachers like me can't help but miss it, that there really are these kind of three related but distinct uses of that same verb. And I know, I mean, I mean, it just happens to be we're recording this on a day when having had a kind of week of spring in Indiana, then turned and it's all gloomy again and gray. (laughs) And like when I'm kind of groaning, I get caught up in my own, Mm. everything's about me and my needs and pain. And I mean, the best thing that I could have had today was a bunch of appointments like this one, you know, to kind of get me out of my funk, to get me engaged in something. Right. But I, but I can't just ignore that and stuff it. I had to explore it, and I did. Did a little journaling between my last appointment and this one. But then to kind of really be equally and more so interested in now the groanings of all of creation. What else is going on? You know, Just to actually lift my head up and notice how crinked my neck is because I've been bending over books and laptop all day. To just kind of look around and say, yeah, I'm not the only one groaning. <laughs> the whole world is groaning. Right. Uh, and even the right. spirit's groaning. 
again, that brings us back to that duality because the language of groaning is very, can be a little dark and brings out the suffering, but it's linked directly to hope because groaning, groaning has a sense of longing of something that's coming. Yeah. And I think it's nice in this passage to see that it is not turned in on itself, right? Mm, it is not mm. groaning for the sake of giving vent to my own personal little stuckness today, you know, or yeah. my sense of whatever it is that I, you know, that I'm particularly annoyed about with the world, but that it is part and parcel of wait of of waiting expectantly and of knowing that I'm not alone and of knowing that that we are are not alone and that God is already there in that with us. In that with us and out ahead of us. <laughs> yeah. Pulling yeah. us yeah. forward. Yeah. Into something we can't yet grasp, but is already grasping us. Yeah. Now I'm gonna get too cute. Grasping, groaning. <laughs> the groaning of the grasped. No, nah, that, that's <laughs> maybe not. Yeah. But it's a place to start. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been really good. Thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it greatly. Happy to be with you, John. Well, thanks, as always, to our listeners and for getting the word out about the show. Thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. Can't imagine doing it without them. Thanks to our patron uh, sponsors, our patron saints. They couldn't imagine doing this without you. So uh, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, as always, we say, have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>